to the Sharpen Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the American Alpine Club, and I'm your host, Ashley Sapi. We couldn't do this without our incredible sponsors. So first and foremost, I am so grateful and super stoked to say that Mammut has signed on for their second year sponsoring the show. Designed and developed in the Swiss Alps, Mammut has been making the finest Alpine equipment since the 1860s. Driven by a continuous quest for innovation, Mammut's technical clothing, footwear, climbing gear, avalanche safety, and Alpine equipment are distinguished by the highest quality, functionality, and safety. They embody Swiss technology and perfection. Mammut, absolute Alpine. Thank you to the Colorado Howard Bound School for happily committing another year of podcast sponsorship as well. And finally, I'd like to welcome a new sponsor, Health IQ. I'll tell you a little bit more about Health IQ at the end of the show. You can show your support for this podcast and the American Alpine Club by joining or renewing with the AAC this month. And if you use promo code SHARPEND with no spaces at checkout, you can receive a free Sharp End trucker hat. And as an AAC member, you'll not only help make this podcast possible, but you'll also receive $12,500 in rescue benefit coverage, annual AAC publications, including Accidents North American Climbing, which is the book that I love, and great gear discounts. So go to www.americanalpineclub.org to make all that happen. Okay, okay. And just one more thing before we get started here. A guy named Brendan, who is an instructor and guide at the Australian School of Mountaineering, wrote in recently to tell me how much he loves the Sharpen podcast. So thanks, Brendan, and all my other fans in Australia. This one's for you. Enjoy. Okay, so it has taken me six months to finally connect with this person to get this interview. He's a busy guy who gets after it. Um, I first heard about this accident in June of last year. Yeah, my friend told me that this guy had a ground fall in El Dorado Canyon on the Evictor, which is a 512C climb on the Rincon Wall in Boulder, Colorado. So I'd like to introduce you to my friend Jaffe. Awesome. Thanks, Ashley. Uh, my name is Jaffe Dungana, and I am a mountain guide. I work as a rock and alpine guide, and um, I've been climbing for 16 years. And I, you know, nowadays I professionally teach and instruct um, climbing. And on my time off, I go climbing as well. So. Yeah, and I actually met you at a climbing crag at the. Um, I met you at Vitavu in Wyoming. Yeah, that was actually a really interesting time uh, to cross paths with you, partly because um, that was one of my early um, climbs since uh, this accident that I had that we're going to talk about in a little bit. And I remember kind of being nervous uh, on that trip because um, I wasn't sure how it would be like uh, climbing outside in a place that I know quite well, Vedu. And especially climbing off with um, cracks. Um, yeah, so basically I took um, lead fall that ultimately resulted in a ground fall. And I hit the ground. And there's a bunch of factors that led to it. 
Um, but that's kind of the short story is that um, I took a lead fall on a climb in El Dorado Canyon, uh, just outside of Boulder, Colorado. Um, I was climbing a route called the Evictor. Um, it's a rather well-known route at the grade over here for being um, kind of a harder trad lead. And I did it in a style that's called head pointing. Um, so a head point is a little bit different than a red point in that a head point, um, the climb itself is rehearsed previously on top rope um, and you rehearse it enough such that you memorize the gear placements as well. So it's a very specific sequence, um, not just of the movements in the, in the climb itself, but you um, memorize and rehearse the gear because it's somewhat tricky to do. Um, in fact, just a handful of years ago, the climb got its first actual on-site, um, which means you know unrehearsed um, with no previous beta, um, and that was none other than Alex Honnold. Mm. Uh, before that, no one, no one had ever done this particular climb um, without having rehearsed it uh, previously. And yeah, I spent uh, <clears throat> basically uh, that same day, it was my first day on the route, and I rehearsed it um, a handful of times um, to the point where I was getting it uh, pretty regularly on top rope, as in I think I did it twice um, on top rope, fully um, mock leading with all the gear and had all the gear placements pretty dialed um, to the point where on your harness all you had was those seven pieces of gear for about a, it's an 80-foot climb. Um, and so I was feeling pretty confident about being able to do the climb uh, and I you know was doing that in this in a way that I was like okay cool it's rehearsed it's practiced it's uh, measured and it's done in a way that um, in my opinion I was trying to minimize the risk of the route you know by saying hey I know what gear goes how it goes where it goes in what orientation does it go? In what order does it go? How do I place it from which stand? So really every micro detail was charted out. And I, you know, I can be a little analytical with climbs like this. And so I even tend to jot down on a little notebook with a little sketch, um, not just the specific gear placements, but how they're placed, where they're placed from. So you can imagine a, a very, very much of a rehearsed choreography, um, not something like that was a flash of uh, of inspiration to go climb or anything like that. Um, so at any rate, at that that day in El Dorado Canyon, um, it was March, and I was out with two other friends, um, both of whom are also mountain guides, um, colleagues of mine, good friends, uh, and we were just out for a day off from work. We wanted to go climb something fun, and everybody had their own projects that they were working on, um, separate climbs, all head points. And um, I had done mine um, pr about four times in total. The first two were, you know, figuring out the moves and the gear. And then the second two was just climbing the thing on a top rope, but placing the gear as I go along to mimic what a lead would be like. Because ultimately that was the goal, was to start from the ground, place every piece of protection on lead, and climb the route all the way to the anchors. Um, after two burns, I was feeling um, I was feeling really good about the route. Um, 
I had it dialed. But I was, it was also getting late in the day. Um, so it was probably around 3 p.m. or so at that stage. And this is winter time, so you know, kind of the tail end of the day because it is about an hour's hike to get to this crag. Not terribly long by general cragging standards, but still. And I was actually ready to call it good for that day because I was a little bit tired. Um, and I thought that's a great last burn. The next time I come to this crag, I'm going to send this for sure where I can place all the gear and I can climb it well. Um, so that was my, my thinking behind it. Um, and at that, at that stage, my partner, um, he was going to give his climb a burn. And, you know, sometimes when you rehearse these climbs, they tend to be rather long leads or rather long, um, burns, let's say even on a top rope, right, is that because it takes so much effort and time that you have to rest on the rope a lot. You know, and anyone who's projected a route, whether sport or trad, um, can relate to this uh, this this idea of a, of a patient belayer. And so, um, you know, over the course of the day, we were all being patient belayers to each other as friends. Um, after my last burn, I moved into the patient belay mode and basically put on all my warm layers it was kind of a cold day necessitating kind of big down jackets you know we even bring like puffy pants to hang out and um so i was belaying my partner on his climb and that took a while um which is totally normal and totally cool uh, but after his climb uh, probably about an hour had passed since my last attempt um at the route since my last top rope where i'd climbed it successfully um, and then it was time to go home, essentially. And I was like, all right, let's go home. But then my partner suggested, he said, hey, I mean, if you can top rope the climb, <laughs> you can climb it, you can send it, you can lead it. <laughs> and he said, how do you feel now? And I said, well, now I feel quite rested because I've just been belaying for an hour. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so now at this stage, you know, it's getting close to four o'clock. Um, and I thought, yeah, you know what? He's right. What's the harm in giving it an actual lead burn where I forego the top rope and i just go ahead and go for it on lead um at that stage you know kind of you start the climb below um some 510 moves to to open up i had that pretty wired then there's some 511 moves um that's actually the run out section of the climb so traditionally folks who've done the climb agree that this kind of lower to mid section probably from the um, 15 to 40 foot section, there's uh, a significant run out. Uh, the clock's in at 511. Um, and so that's the actual safety crux on the route because there are moments where if you fall, there's a potential, uh, if your belayer isn't paying attention, to, to get really close to hitting the ground. I fired that section no problem. So that, that section felt really solid, got past it. After that, initial runout section there's a really good um, horizontal crack Um, and this horizontal crack is the only rest on the route and it's it's a good stance but it's not a a no hands rest you know you're still holding on uh, to an undercling slash jug right next to it uh, and you're shaking out as best as you can Uh, and in this horizontal crack i had loaded up um what I kind of thought of as my catastrophe pieces, as my oh shit pieces, <laughs> kind of like your um, 
your 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 safest pieces really which, which pieces were they <laughs> and it's in a horizontal crack and there were large pieces it was a, a 0.5 and a 0.75 camelot black diamonds um so you know larger cams they weren't small cams i was past the kind of harder run out section of the climb down low so i was kind of at ease it's like okay great now i got the the safety crux out of the way above this is really just the athletic crux and so I thought, okay, now this upper section, I'm high enough. I'm above the 40-foot mark on the route. So from 40 to kind of like um, 70, 80 feet, really right up to the, the anchors, is pretty sustained climbing that doesn't let up. And you can only get um, about three pieces of gear in that stretch. Um, so it's, it's rather sparse, but you're high enough that if you do fall, my thinking and for a lot of folks that have climbed the route after having had many discussions and conversations is that this horizontal crack the gear is the gear is so good that in this horizontal crack that shouldn't stop every kind of possible ground fall (laughs) which is why i put two cams in there i know people that have placed just one cam in there Um, and i just thought okay you know what i'll place two cams here because you can it's restful um, why not? I put two cams in there, and then I equalized both of those with a single quick draw. So they they seat such that they're it's in a horizontal crack, and they can be right next to each other, equalized with a quick draw clipped to the webbing on both cams. Mm-hmm. So the rope is still click, clipped off to just one quick draw. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, shook out calmed the mind i was feeling really good really relaxed at ease as i would like to feel on a climb and then i went off cast off did the moves as rehearsed without hesitation went up uh, and then you know got past the hardest single move of the climb got up to that spot um and actually to get there basically i so i I mentioned earlier there are three pieces above that horizontal break i placed two of those three pieces which are okay pieces. They're not um, incredible, uh, but at the same time, I'd place them just the way I had intended to. Um, they're in a slightly flaring crack that's a vertical crack this time. You're following this crack system, and it's hard to, because of the flare and how shallow it is, it's hard to get the stem pointed completely downwards to the direction of fall. So I'd place the gear kind of as best as I could, but it's still sort of sticking out of the crack a little horizontally on a vertical crack. And those were, uh, it was a 0.4 and a 0.75 cam. So two other, you know, relatively larger cams. Um, And then past that, you do the hardest single move, and then you do a series of other moves before you can slot a nut which is a you know trucker nuts you know one of the it, that nut just hard to imagine it ever failing once you put it in there. Um, I was above my last piece of gear when I pulled the final move, and then I just started feeling quite tired, um, exhausted. Um, n- you know, normal because I, it was the end of the climbing day, and at that stage I thought, okay, if I fell from here, um, I'm looking at you know. Uh, a 20, 25 foot fall. Uh, but by my calculations, uh, that was okay. Because I just thought, okay, that's not a bad fall. Um, it's steep terrain. This is a you know rather steep climb, so there's nothing to hit. 
Um, and my last, you know, I have good gear in here, gear that I've rehearsed and I know is placed as, as best as I can place in those circumstances. Of course, it doesn't also help that um, just recently, um, the, just like maybe a week or two before this day that I was climbing, um, there was a weekend whipper video. <laughs> and this particular weekend whipper video, it's like a video series that uh, Rock and Ice puts out online, had this climb no. and another guy <laughs> climb, <laughs> falling from the same exact spot. <laughs> um, and falling on the same piece of gear that I had, you know, and you climbers get pretty obsessive about these. And so I was like, oh, well, he fell from that same spot and he was totally fine. Like he took a big ride, but the gear held. <laughs> So in my mind, I had this confidence and this ease and this kind of calmness, really, um, about the climb as a whole uh, and about my abilities to engage with the climb. Got up to that spot, was tired, and then, you know, my buddies down below are yelling at me as good partners do, really supportive, really kind, come on, you got this. And I just felt like I was like, eh, you know what, I'm going to fall. Not a big deal. I'll let go and fall. And I just let go and I fell. And next thing I knew, I was being uh, pulled out on a stretcher and like friends, you know, emergency response and all sorts of things happening, which was uh, mind boggling to me um, at the time and still is, incidentally. But um, basically, um, I had four pieces of gear rip. It was the last two pieces I'd placed on the vertical crack, the .4 and the .75, and somehow my nest or my oh shit pieces, my kind of catastrophe pieces in the horizontal crack had also failed, according to my two partners who were, who witnessed the whole um, kind of uh, accident unfold. And it was incredulous to me at, at the time, and it still is. And I remember actually thinking um, when one of my partners was um, trying to gauge my le- my kind of level of consciousness, um, I was able to respond to pretty much all his questions, um, except I was not uh, aware of situations leading up to the incident because mm-hmm. I kept asking, what happened? <laughs> And he would explain, he said, hey, okay, your, your gear ripped and you hit the ground. And I would say, really? And then about two minutes later, and I apparently did this, you know, over a dozen times and it was rather annoying to them after a while. <laughs> but I kept asking, did my gear rip? Did I hit the ground? And they would respond in the affirmative both times and I wouldn't believe it. And I will keep asking that same question as if asking it more times would change the outcome. It didn't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's a bit unbelievable even if you didn't hit your head. I mean, having if you take a fall, having one piece rip is one thing or even two pieces rip is one thing. But two vertical pieces plus two horizontal bomber pieces rip, like that's pretty unbelievable if they're good pieces. So it, it's just exactly. it's hard for me to believe listening to the story and I didn't even hit my head. <laughs> 
<laughs> that yeah, I still feel that way, even though I, you know, uh, the outcome of it, the aftermath of it, I had to spend ten days in the in the hospital and in the intensive care unit, and you know, a couple months of recovery, um, and what what I think was a near near life experience, <laughs> you know, near death experience. Um, and so I think at that time that was really hard for me to, to believe, partly because I, I felt like I placed every piece with the kind of intention that I'd like to place it. Um, that said, I think a couple things uh, were, you know, like I like to call it like bad luck turned good luck, like in that it was bad luck that it probably happened. And there's probably some things I can speculate on that in a moment as to probably why some of that gear ripped. Uh, but good luck as well in that, you know, a ground fall from, you know, 70 feet high um, resulted in what I consider to be, you know, rather minor injuries um, in the long, in the long run. And I, I, I count myself to be very fortunate and feel pretty grateful that it all turned out the way it did. What were your injuries with a 70-foot groundfall? Um, so I was wearing a helmet, so there were no head injuries. Um, and the primary injuries were that I had fractured my pelvis in four different locations. Um, I fractured my sacrum, and I had a compression fracture on my L1 vertebra, my lumbar spine um, vertebra. Those are kind of the major orthopedic um, injuries. Uh, perhaps the most significant, though, was that um, I had also lost a lot of blood internally. Um, on the outside, I hadn't actually bled, um, so I didn't have any open wounds where the fractures were. Um, I had kind of some like a laceration on my face, a very minor one that was very much first aidable. Um, but the kind of major injury was that I had uh, pretty massive internal bleeding um, from uh, seven spots inside uh, my ab- like abdominal area where there were ruptured blood vessels. Um, and so the way the doctors were able to explain that to me is they said that potentially from this impact, um, no skin was broken, but just the, the impact of it uh, and the, the fractures uh, may have kind of cut some of the blood vessels open. And so over the next kind of uh, two days, um, I ended up losing quite a lot of blood internally. And the only procedure they had to do with the doctors was um, to go in there. Um, God, I forget the term now that, that they use kind of, um, they insert essentially this this scope inside um, inside your body and are able to, to stop the bleeding um, internally. Um, and yeah, they said that that was probably the most significant injury. Well, I'm glad to be talking to you right now. I know, I feel the same way. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you were going to mention some of the things that you, you kind of speculate why this happened. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so the first one is that... Um, you know, even though a climb can be well rehearsed and, you know, I placed the gear as I wanted to place it, um, the gear shifted, simply put, um, in that, in a, in a kind of, in a lead fall scenario, especially a, a true whipper, you know, where I was, I was about, you know, 15 feet or so above my last piece of gear, 
um, even if that gear holds, you're still looking at you know a 30 to 40 foot fall when you calculate in the uh, the stretch because uh, you're 15 feet above the piece of gear, you'll fall 15 feet plus another 15 plus give or take a little bit extra depending on the, the kind of rope, um, the dynamic rope you're using. So uh, a lead fall just generates a lot of force on your gear. And not only does it generate a lot of force, but your gear also has a lot of possibility for shifting um, in its trajectory, which I think just highlights the extreme importance of placing lead gear very precisely. Um, in this particular case, I had done my best, but something happened, right? The gear must have shifted. There's no other explanation in my mind, especially the upper pieces and the, and the vertical crack, which I knew were not 100% bomber. Um, so they were a little, um, kind of the crack was a little shallow, so you can, couldn't get the stem to point downwards. You couldn't get it to, to face the direction of fall. So it was kind of sticking out a little bit horizontally. Um, and at the time I thought it was good enough, right? But somehow it must've, as the fall came through, it must've shifted. Top piece must've blown. The second piece must've blown. And then there's kind of a, you know, a 15 foot stretch before the, my horizontal kind of what I thought were bomber pieces. Um, and somehow maybe the, the force of those upper two ripping um, must have had some impact on that hor that horizontal crack, uh, the pieces that were in that horizontal crack to the point where it caused that to fail. It loaded perhaps in a way that was unpredictable. I don't know. Hard for me to explain. That's that part is pure speculation. Um, all this really kind of the hey why kind of because we haven't figured out exactly uh, what happened and we we may not. Um, there's also speculation, and again I highly emphasize the speculation part that um, the gear I was using may not have been the appropriate gear for that climb because. Uh, all these cams that I'm mentioning, the cams in the horizontal crack, the cams in the vertical crack, were all the new Black Diamond Ultralight C4s. And um, it's you know I, I don't want to say that it was a gear issue because I I truly believe that it's not a gear issue. I know that the gear is uh, tested and it's you know strong. Um, I think that one of my uh, theories might be that it was perhaps a misapplication of that specific camming device for the climb. In that the C4s and especially the ultralights um, have somewhat stiff stems. They're not the most flexible stems of the different camming units. If you compare those to, let's say, uh, Metolius cams or uh, even the X4 line that Black Diamond has, or Aliens, which were the original kind of a flexible stem camming unit. Um, so they were a little more rigid, perhaps, for that kind of a climb, especially thinking of those upper two pieces that were, you know, the cam couldn't be placed quite in the direction of pull. It was a little sticking out a little horizontally. And so part of me, you know, in the analysis of it thinks, that, okay, well, I had a rack, you know, a double rack of ultralight cams that I brought there that I love. I still do. I still use these cams. 
but the the proper choice might have been a, a different cam with a different um, with a more flexible stem unit because that would make it a little more forgiving in a shallower placement where your stem is sticking out a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So that's another speculation. The lobes on the C4s, or sorry, the ultralight C4s are also slightly skinnier and thinner than the regular C4. So there's slightly less contact area and they designed that and you know made made this product to make it a little lighter so they kind of shaved weight off part of that was uh, thinning down the lows and so it could have been that on this particular climb and this particular day the way they were placed that little tiny bit of contact less on the rock may have had an effect um, in levering these cams out like they failed just with that little bit whereas maybe a c4 or other cams specifically with fatter lobes may not have done that again this is speculation like with just more surface area on the rock yeah, catching you exactly mm-hmm. exactly more surface area on the rock mm-hmm. um, so that explains kind of the upper cams blowing um, because that's the one that I was like, okay, I can see that happening. But part of the reason why I placed that horizontal piece, that rest, was to be like, all right, if all else fails, this will save me. I have two pieces that will for sure save me. <laughs> exactly. Those two pieces were so good that I could have built a belay and gone off belay. And, you know, that that's a belay station style uh, pieces. <laughs> but those failed too. But those failed too, and they were ultralights as well. And you know, I don't know why. I still have no no idea. But it might be that the way those upper two pieces failed uh, created a different effect on the lower piece, and how it pulled in an unpredictable fashion. I don't know. That said, um, there's also the other part of the story that I said this is bad luck turned good luck. The bad luck is that hard to explain, hard to draw lessons from, learning from. But the good luck is also that the ground fall and the list of injuries presented, the way it all turned out in the end, um, leads me to believe that some measure of force was dissipated in the system while those cams failed. I don't know exactly where, maybe specific, most specifically at that horizontal crack, maybe those cams held long enough or enough to slow down the fall and reduce my body's impact on the ground when I finally hit the ground, if that makes sense. <laughs> right. So they, it's like they caught you a little bit and yep. almost lowered you to the ground. I mean, you still impacted, no doubt. But exactly. if, if those two pieces, or maybe if you had even just placed one piece in that horizontal crack, you would have hit the ground much faster and much harder versus not. Who knows? You know, at this stage, um, <clears throat> it's hard to it's hard to kind of know exactly what happened. But yeah, you know, a lot of people ask me the, that question after after the accident. It's like, well, how does? Um, yeah, there's like a, a physical recovery phase that I have to go through. I have to go through, you know, a lot of PT and things like that because I couldn't walk initially, and I had to relearn kind of my gait and steps and so forth. Um, but people were like, well, but how do you feel about climbing? How do you feel about gear and protection and leading and trad climbing? <laughs> you know, I don't know. And my response has always been, I still feel similarly in that I, 
even though I can't explain why this incident happened, why what I could have done to prevent this accident specifically, I still feel like it's a safe sport and that, you know, one can climb safely. And in fact, as soon as I was able to, I was right back to climbing again. It took me about, um, I think it was like the, the eight week mark that I was back in the climbing gym and I had to start from a very low level. I couldn't even do the easiest climb in the gym. I had to go to the kind of kitty wall, um, where, you know, little like you know little kids learn how to climb just to uh, barely do the motions of climbing <laughs> uh, but fortunately our bodies are remarkable and you know i was able to heal from that recover and um within you know kind of three month mark i was kind of back to uh to working and guiding and that's probably when i met you in Vedu, um was around kind of the three month mark and you know it was a really a, an incredible process for me to witness my own body um, day by day, um, healing up, which, uh, I think is pretty incredible. And that's probably a, a note to, you know, other folks who are potentially going through injuries right now or recovering or going through physical therapy that, um, you know, it's, it, it really pays off to be optimistic about how incredible our bodies are in, in, uh, in healing itself. You are quite the optimist. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> So what what advice do you have for your fellow community of climbers out there? Um, yeah, I think that's part of what I love about your podcast is that it's you know such a, a giving podcast for for advice and um, lessons. Um, unfortunately, I don't have any technical lessons from this, and I wish I had you know, more specific, oh, well, here's a technical learning point uh, about climbing systems and so forth. I think the biggest takeaway for me is that um, climbing, and in particular lead climbing, and more so traditional lead climbing with traditional pro, and even more so um, run out traditional climbing. It's dangerous. When you add more and more of these factors in, things get more and more, uh, there are more risks that are associated with them. Yeah. And we can do certain things to manage that risk, but that's the key there is we're, we're just managing those risks. Ultimately, the outcome, um, you know, could still be unfavorable. Um, and that's part of what draws us to this sport is that it's an unpredictable, uncertain um, sport. If it was certain and we could have all the answers, I don't think most of us would draw that much enjoyment. Part of it is the mystery, that awe, the the figuring out, the the mathematics, the kind of the magic of it all, really. And I think that you know we just have to understand and accept that anytime we engage in these things, anytime we shift from not climbing to climbing, uh, from top rope climbing to all of a sudden lead climbing from lead climbing all of a sudden to maybe sport climbing outside to, hey, all right, I'm gonna go trad climbing outside. All right, I'm gonna do a hard trad climb. All right, I'm gonna do a run out hard trad climb that has very specific (laughs) gear beta. (laughs) The more you add these things on, kind of the more hazards abound. Um, And the more subtle and fine tuned the mistakes, I guess the more and more fine-tuned the decisions need to be in order for that line of management to, to be positive is that it becomes really fine. In my case, you know, again, we've speculated already, 
It might have been the difference between a, a different cam or a different style of cam, or it might be a millimeter placed over here or there, or whatever it is, right? But regardless of knowing the exact outcome, is that those those differences are very minute, um, and they can have pretty major impacts on a person. Like I am, you know, it is not like I know that I was very close to dying that day, and that could have easily been. Um, a fatality um, and I feel really grateful that it wasn't yeah. <laughs> I feel really grateful for everyone that helped you know, helped me out along the way kind of just the, the rescue and everything like that but, but that, that, that line of decision making was very fine and I feel so fortunate that I'm able to kind of like have that learning and talk about this right now and still be able to smile and have a really enjoyable high quality of life <laughs> Thanks to Jaffe Dungana for sharing his story on the show with us today. And thank you to the listeners. Please take a moment and leave me a review on iTunes. Giving feedback on that forum is incredibly important for the Sharpen's growth. So help me out and take a couple of minutes of your day to let me know what you think of the show. Call the sponsors, tell them thank you. And don't forget, if you join or renew your membership with the American Alpine Club this month, you'll get a brand new Sharp End hat. You can also send your comments directly to accidents at AmericanAlpineClub.org. And I'm always looking for suggestions for interviews. Interesting fact, three out of the five people that I ask to interview decline. Of course, thank you to the sponsors that make this happen. Mammut, the Colorado Hour Bound School, and Health IQ. The Colorado Hour Bound School has been changing lives through challenge and discovery for more than 55 years. They offer wilderness expeditions in Colorado, Utah, Arizona, Alaska, and Ecuador. Courses range in 8 to 81 days in length for ages 12 plus and include backpacking, mountaineering, canyoneering, rafting, and rock climbing. Visit www.cobs.org to plan your next adventure. So Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates on life insurance for health conscious people like climbers, alpinists, skiers, runners, cyclists, strength trainers, and more. To see if you qualify, get your free quote today at healthiq.com backslash sharp or just mention the promo code SHARP when you talk to a Health IQ agent. Until next time, play hard and be smart.